Hello and welcome to Navarra FM brought to you by Navarra Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's very finest radio station, broadcasting still across the capital and across the internet through the ingenuity and skill of its engineers while we all face and go through the lockdown. Navarra Media 2 is still going, providing you with articles, videos, podcasts and more. Hit us up at the Navarra Media website for all of those, including our daily update throughout the crisis, The Burner. Last night, just after the Chancellor issued his third major budgetary intervention in the space of two weeks, I sat down over the internet, of course, uh, fastidiously practising physical distancing, uh, with James Meadway, former advisor to the Shadow Chancellor and regular economic brain here at Navarra. Uh, we've ironed out most of the technical difficulties in recording. It should all be very smooth as a listening experience. You may occasionally hear just the occasional buzz on the line. And my thanks to James for bearing with me and my sometimes patchy boat-based internet too. Just think of it all as gonzo recording in the time of COVID-19. Um, okay, so obviously we're we're speaking... You know, just a couple of hours after the Chancellor's laid out his new package for the self-employed, which was on top of that offered to those in employment a week ago. So let's start there. It's obviously a, a huge intervention into the economy. And, I, you know, I, I do think the left sometimes gets this wrong to talk down the, the sheer scale of this stuff. Um, but it is a huge, huge intervention is it enough? Well, no, not really. I mean, this is something that, that keeps happening where they make these very large interventions, then it, they fall short on, on specific details. And it's odd to keep doing this. It's become quite a feature of the last few weeks or so, because what's happened is is you've had, as the Chancellor said, some of the biggest peacetime interventions ever made in the British economy. So that's the 80% support for employed workers who are laid off um, to keep paying 80, up to 80% of their wages uh, during the time that the crisis is on. And then this week, it's something similar for self-employed. It's 80% of, of your average earnings over a period of time. But they're only going to start paying it from June. So what you're mm. supposed to do between now and June isn't entirely clear. And it, the Chancellor did get asked this in the press conference and, and gave a not very convincing, not very clear answer, which is, you know, there are other kinds of support available, which is, which is true, but you end up with universal credit and it's five week waiting period and a, and a very, very low rate of payments that are made from that. So so it's continually like huge interventions that then sort of misfire somewhere in some important details. And this looks like one of them. It, it really isn't good enough to say self-employed people wait for basically two months before you get any money. Mm. Right. I mean, the, but it, it does sort of, uh, you know, raise the, the question, I suppose, it's the question that, that has occurred to me throughout is, is why? Why are these, these, these small details overlooked like this. I mean, because, you know, so for instance, the question of universal credit, so people brought up whether universal credit payments could be brought forward. And Therese Coffey, the the DWP minister, was saying, oh, well, it's it's just impossible that we, the, the program, the, the, the software that administers universal credit, just can't do it, can't be done. Computer says no. So it seems odd, I think, you know, for, to, when, when you have interventions of this such a scale to, that, that these things are either overlooked or not, not just simply not addressed. I suppose the other side of it, I, when you're thinking about the way that this is designed, you know, both in the case of some of the business support that was brought out a week ago and, and, and this stuff today, there's been a, a, a really, really strong emphasis on loans. Mm. Um, you know, there were 
taxable grants mentioned today as well. But you know, there, there, there's lots of stuff about uh, the availability of loans and effectively debt. So, for instance, today, you know, they were talking about that that self-employed people could defer some of the the payments that they make to. Mm-hmm. To, uh, to the tax authorities. Uh, they could def- de- defer them, I think, until January. But that, to me, I'm, I don't know whether I'm just dumber than the people in the Treasury. I don't think that's probably, I'm not sure that's true. But <laughs> that looks like you take on debt at a moment in the future which doesn't look particularly rosy right now. It, what, do you, can you see any of what they're thinking might be there? Well, there's probably maybe two or three parts to it. One of this is, is, is a sort of ideology, and, and I don't just that's often used as a bit of a sort of swear word about why are you doing this terrible thing because of ideology? You're just a terrible person. I don't mean it like that. I mean, there's quite embedded, particularly in the Treasury. Uh, there's an ideology of, of sort of rational calculation about everything and, and you have to account in a very particular sense for every single pound that is spent anywhere through cost benefits analysis and this should be you know the, the sort of benthamite calculus that almost that, that's chewing away inside the treasury somewhere in terms of how they think about the world so it means that everything ends up looking a bit kind of penny pinch and a bit uh, falling short of what needs to happen because basically there's an ideology of not really having big interventions that will shift things you're always continuing making a calculation of, of marginal changes somewhere. So so the thing's geared up to try and produce stuff that, that is ultimately trying to generate a marginal shift when you're doing a very big intervention. So I suspect you end up with these rather peculiar instances like, like we've got here. There's a second one, which is a sort of capacity of the British state itself as a, as a whole to try and think like this. We're asking the British state, which were really for 40 years has had governments that don't think in terms of can the government take a sort of proactive role in the economy. There are brief periods where it does in 2008, nine, that sort of thing. But mostly you have governments that don't think like this and mostly you have a state that doesn't work like this. So it never, uh, never arrives with the assumption that the government is there to really shape outcomes. It's just there to sort of set a level playing field or whatever. So, so again, you're trying to get the thing to work in a way, getting the entire machine to work in a way it's not set up to do. So that the political will isn't really there to crack through things like DWP's ropey universal credit software, which appears to be the, the holdup over there, or to think laterally about how you might do this. You know, HMRC have the bank account details of pretty much every self-employed person in the country because they pay tax. So that means you have a mechanism for getting money to them if you think about it not really too much, and you can do that fairly quickly. Um, autonomy and, and a couple of the other think tanks have put out proposals like this, and they've not been taken up because that involves a, a real shift in the machinery and the functioning and the capacity of the state, which includes its capacity for leadership at a time like this. And that, I think, is probably the third one, which is the the political leadership has has been distinctly lacking throughout this crisis in the sense that, you know, the, the... from Boris Johnson downwards, there's been a belief up until very recently that they could do as little as possible and that would be all right. And now it's sunken over sort of the last sort of two weeks almost that clearly that wasn't going to be all right and they have to do something. But the capacity to actually set that kind of lead, uh, I, I don't think is particularly there from the political side of it, uh, as well as the administrative side. So, so you end up, that's a rather big picture sort of sweeping explanation. But I do think we're looking at a kind of a, a chronic failure of the state machine itself to be able to deliver things properly. Mm. I mean, I think I'm, I, just to say I'm getting a little distortion on on your line there, um, <laughs> but I think I think we'll keep going. I'm sure it, I'm sure it will function. I'm sure it will work. Um, I, I I suppose in that sense, I, I guess there there is this question about you know what you know. It's, it's the question that that preoccupies everyone in opposition is what 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 would you do in their place? Because you know the emphasis 
in Sunak's speech today um, was that it, it that it's difficult, right? So so this is the thing that that I found strangest because as you say, HMRC obviously has the the bank details of every self employed person in the country. So so the the question is, I, I guess. What does he mean when he says it's difficult? Because, I mean, in an obvious and trivial sense, obviously, it is difficult to figure out how you're going to intervene in the economy in a crisis like this. So that I, that I understand. But but the, the idea that it's difficult to make payments like this to support self-employed people doesn't seem to me to be obviously true. I think it's, I mean, there is there are two levels of difficulty here. The first one is the obvious sense in which it is just difficult to do things. That's like your basic like administrative problem that you have all the time. And it applies with more force in the crisis because there's more going on. But but that's taken as read. I think that the difficulty is really getting towards here is it is difficult to do these things in a way that they don't turn into permanent features of life. Uh, that already the argument is being lined up if you see The Economist, uh, one of their editorials today, is, well, we have to intervene now, but the important thing is we've got to have a get-out clause later. We've got to work out how to get rid of the state again and get things back to a kind of normality uh, as they see it. So so I think some of the difficulty here is how can you establish these things in such a way that they don't become permanent features of the political landscape? How can you get everything so it can be unwound? Um, a classic example of this is... The, what happens with quantitative easing introduced from early 2009 by the Bank of England and introduced in such a way uh, where the bank was going out to buy government debt with the reasoning that if it was buying government debt now, it would be easy to sell the government debt later because it's very liquid. People want government debt, so it's a liquid asset. And therefore, you could unwind the uh, quantitative easing uh, very, very rapidly uh, when the time came. So so in other words, you're setting the thing up so it's easy to get out of again, right? So you set the thing up so you can back back out of it. Uh, and this is quite a well-entrenched mechanism. By the way, the quantitative easing has never been unwound. That £425 mm. billion pounds we now have is still is still sitting there of government debt mostly that was bought by the Bank of England. So it's it's never actually happened. Um, but they are trying to, I think, set up some of these mechanisms now so they can walk away from them later. And it doesn't turn into a sort of permanent political demand or something that's hard to extricate yourself from. Right. I thought, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's that, the you know, the the classic. Yes, yeah, I think you're right. The classic case, of course, in in, in sort of fiscal world is, is, you know, we do live in a, a, a sort of QE and zero interest rate world now really i mean it's really it's 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 quite striking it's like hard to see how that that changes you know the the example i always like to reach for is is also you know in terms of just the stickiness of policy innovations is something like council tax which was sort of dreamt up as a rapid replacement for the poll tax and is you know still around what is it 28 years later um so 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 this this sort of stuff is that 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 i do think you're right about that reasoning i suppose though in terms of the way in which the Conservative Party thinks about the way it does economics, um, you know, and the way in which they've talked about it, perhaps not so strongly, in fact, in the past six months or so, uh, you know, during the Boris Johnson period, um, but certainly for the 10 years or so before that, um, you know, so they, they talk about, you know, balancing the books and so on and so on. Because my question is, is, you know, what does this make, you know, the UK's public accounts look like by the, by the end of this year? Because it, that's a really astonishing shift for the Conservative Party, uh, you know, very profound one. You think of what the debt to GDP ratio might look like by the end of the year, um, and you're 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 looking at, at something you know, that that the Conservatives of just a couple of years ago would sort of have in their crosshairs. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know, 
you know, I don't know, you know, in terms of the policy choices they then make. And we, I guess also it's not at all clear that the, that the consequences of this crisis, I mean, I hope the pandemic will be, but the consequences of this crisis will be over by the end of this year. So, you know, I just wonder if you have a thought on I the kind of time scale we're looking that. at. Yeah. Sorry, you were fading out slightly there, but um, yeah, <laughs> I got the sense of it. Um, the, 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 I mean, look, the, the Conservative Party was already shifting under Boris Johnson away from a, a sort of pure austerity position. In fact, he had already shifted at least verbally under Theresa May, but then Boris Johnson confirmed mm. this is with an actual change in, in government spending plans. So, so that already happened uh, more or less as soon as he became prime minister in the general election, confirmed some of this. Rishi Sunak's budget, which I, I think was only two weeks ago, but, but as you said, it seems like <laughs> very, very much longer. And he's effectively had two additional budgets since. If you look at the size of the interventions uh, that he, he's made in uh, these two separate weeks. Um, so it's that, that has completely blown any sense of normal fiscal accounting out of the out of the window. Uh, he's he said, Rishi Sunak has said that essentially support will be unlimited. Right, it's, it's an open ended mm. commitment to keep on paying these things. Now he said it's over three months of this crisis. We don't know. They will be trying to wind everything back down in terms of emergency measures, but we don't know if they'll actually genuinely be able to do that. And if you read some of the sort of recommendations around the epidemiology literature is is that, you know, you'd have a period of tighten restrictions, then loosen restrictions, then maybe tighten restrictions again for some period of time uh, as, vir- as waves of the virus and the pandemic come mm. and go. So, so it could be a long period of easing up and down in this and therefore a long periods of, of additional support. And, and that, that means a very, very significant liability uh, for the government, which, which creates another complication. Uh, and I think there's two reasons why driving back towards austerity will now be really quite difficult for them. Um, the first one's probably the obvious one, which is, is, or maybe the more obvious one, which is the political difficulty of saying we must now get rid of the state after you've just demonstrated in spectacular style how essential the state is during things like emergency uh, periods or, or indeed just the rest of the time to be prepared for this sort of thing. So it's, it's very, very hard. It's one thing to say labour overspent, look at all these silly things they spent money on. It's another thing to say we have overspent. And it's like, well, yes, there was a global pandemic. We had to spend a lot of money on a lot of things to deal with this. So you can't just turn around and say, oh, get rid of the state. You, you can maybe try and change the shape of the state and accelerate the tendency towards just spending money on pensions and healthcare. That's what George Osborne uh, tried to sort of put in train. Not enough money on, on healthcare, certainly over that period of time. But, but that's what he, that's kind of the shape of the state as it, as it now stands. So you might try and accelerate that, but it's basically quite hard to conduct that argument after you've had a massive society-wide, you know, global, planetary-wide demonstration of the value of government. One of them, that's a political one. The second one is that there's a point at which the liabilities become so big there is no plausible path for the government to be able to repay them. There is simply no way at all that you can actually repay the debt you, you've mounted, not without catastrophic levels of austerity, which can be applied. I mean, Greece tried to do something like mm. this in the euro crisis, but that was Greece under under very heavy manners from the European Central Bank. That probably isn't going to apply in the same Well, There's no European Central Bank. There's no external force to make that happen in Britain. So that probably isn't going to apply in the same way. So, so the argument then becomes, well, how do, you, how do you reduce the debt burden in other ways? Do you inflate it away? No, it's too big for that. Do you therefore try and negotiate with your creditors to reduce some of the debt burden? Well, perhaps, and, and that would be significant. Britain's one of the few countries 
properties that's never defaulted on its debt has always made good on the debt that it's taken on. So if we're suddenly in a world where you know writing down some of the value of that debt becomes necessary, this is a very, very big shift, but we may well end up there. Right. I mean, I, I, I think it's probably worth thinking about because, it's, it, you know, as soon as we start talking about debt and, and this kind of stuff, we get into kind of international questions. You, you mentioned Greece there, which I think is is an interesting prelude to this. Um, and and I think it, it brings us on really to questions about the specific nature of this crisis, because obviously we've talked a bit about domestic policy and obviously attention for both uh, the left and the media and, the, you, know, uh, you know, pretty much everyone at the moment is focused on domestic policy, partly because everyone's worried about how they're going to meet bills next month or how they're going to you know, feed their family, which I may think is perfectly understandable. But you talked to me on The Burner earlier this week um, just a little bit about what kind of crisis this is. Because the people have been reaching for these analogies, right? They've been saying, like, oh, it is or it isn't like 2007, 2008, or, or it is and it isn't like the 70s, or it is and it isn't like 1929. You suggested this could be a crisis of a kind that we're not really prepared for, and one that sort of doesn't look like the sort of financial crisis we're all most familiar with, the one that's happened uh, in, in, in very recent years, relatively. So tell me a bit about what you're thinking about that. Well, it, is, it is, I mean, effectively, it's a, it's a sort of crisis sui generis, really. There's never been something like this in the history of capitalism over the last 200 plus years. It's, it's just never occurred. Uh, Adam Tooze, I think, also makes this point uh, today in the, in the Washington Post, that, that you're, if you're looking for historical examples, there isn't an easy and obvious one to go for. Uh, that the, It isn't 2007, 2008, uh, 2009 crisis, because that started in the financial system and then impacted on the rest of the economy. Uh, this, I mean, it doesn't even start in the Economy. It starts in the kind of most mm. fundamental sort of biological relationship we have with the planet and with each other. That's where it starts, and then that destroys uh, the most important institution in capitalism, which is the labour market, because you have to get people out of the labour market. Um, because if they're still at work with other people, then there's a risk of everyone getting infected and killing large numbers of people. So, so it, it kind of tears apart the labour market. You can see that in the unemployment figures just out today in the US. I mean, was it three million people have signed on in the space of a few days? It's going to be something. Mm. Uh, in this country, it's absolutely destroying the, the the fundamental relationships of what capitalism does. I mean, we'll try and patch them up again, but that's what it's doing right now. <laughs> there's not been anything like this. The Great Depression wasn't like this. This there's a series of triggers for that, but basically, it's a financial crisis that cascades into a crisis of the real economy. Uh, that the, that's the kind of mechanism we're used to. This time round, there's a crisis of the the very fundamentals of like how we exist as a society, which hits the real economy, which then impacts the uh, financially. Uh, and that, by the way, is the thing that's now bearing down this all, is a series of sort of debt crises, particularly uh, in the global south, is what this looks like, and the potential for debt crises of one form or another in the global north a bit further down the line. You know, we'll see where we get to on that. So so this is this is catastrophic in a way that other crises in capitalism haven't been. And that means it's going to be extremely difficult, uh, you'd have thought, to, to get back to a kind of pre-COVID normality of, of whatever form that was. It's going to be very, very, it's going to require significant additional interventions to try and get there. Now, whether that's writing off debt, whether that's really like <laughs> utterly transformational uh, extent of austerity to try and pay off the debt, whether that's hyperinflation to get rid of the debt, for instance, if you're just taking the financial aspects of this. But then if you get into the what might happen to labour markets aspects of this, where you have a world in which 
the, the costs of a pandemic are now known in a way they weren't previously. It changes how people mm. behave. So it changes how you run your supply chains. You, you decide not to extend them all over the globe anymore because it creates a risk. You, you travel less internationally. You suddenly find that you have periods where you have to like artificially restrict labor from working because there's this pandemic or epidemic risk that's, that's suddenly involved. Now, one consequence of that might be that labor's suddenly in a stronger position. It has been. Uh, people who work are in a strong position they have been for, for a long period of time. Uh, and potentially you've seen some of that with the series of strikes that have been taking place for things like better you know, healthcare provision and provision of sanitizers mm-hmm. and, and this sort of thing at various workplaces. Amazon workers are on strike at, at warehouses mm-hmm. across Europe at this point in time. So, so potentially there's all sorts of things that get shaken up uh, out of the other side of this. Final one, I suppose, is, is just the, the structure of the international economy itself. Uh, the pressure on the US and the UK to try and exit the crisis period as soon as possible is very intense because if they don't, they will lag significantly behind those economies that basically got straight on top of the crisis and intervened straight away and took the hit straight away and therefore in a better position to exit from it. So principally China, of course, is the big one here, Mm -hmm. but also South Korea and and a few other places. So there's a competitive pressure to try and pull out a crisis as soon as possible. This is what Donald Trump is talking about and the other Republicans are talking about when they say, you know, we're trashing the economy, we can't do this, we have to try and get the economy moving again. So there's there's all sorts of dimensions of this and one of them is quite likely to be, I think, the loss of relative economic power of, of Britain for sure in the US, I think, as well. Mm. Right, but it does seem to me, though, just as you were saying on that last point, that, that there is a problem here, which is that, you know, obviously you have these pressures to bring people back to work, you know, and so, so Trump's plan, obviously, which is he wants people back by Easter. Um, and, and there is all this stuff in, 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 in the US media about, you know, like, oh, well, uh, you know, is the cure worse than the disease, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but it seems to me when that interacts with something like a pandemic, so it's not, it's not like breaking a strike, for instance. So if you had a general strike in the United States and you broke it and you sent people back to work, um, you know, whatever, maybe you risk some further labor unrest down the line. Um, you know, if you successfully break a strike, that doesn't seem to happen very often. Um, so, but this is different because if you haven't successfully dealt with this and you send people back into socialization, back into close quarters in the workplace. You know, there, there was that study saying that you know, for people under 50, highest vector of transmission, uh, you know, highest place of transmission is in the workplace. So you're sending people back into the, it seems to me that you then build up the likelihood of, uh, uh, you know, of another, another wave, another serious wave um, uh, of infection. And I mean, you know, with, with, in the United States, I mean, this already looks pretty serious in places like New York. Right, so it's a, yeah. you know very different to the European story. It doesn't seem to be anywhere near, um, you know, as 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 competently handled. And I don't think it has been particularly competently handled in Europe, but it seems better handled than it has been there. So, so it does seem to me that this is not, you know, it, it, as you say, it's it, you know, it's a, it's a new kind of interaction with the economy. It's not even because like, I was reaching for metaphors as well. I was thinking, you know, is it like, as I say, a general strike? No, not quite, because it has these knock-on effects. Um, is it like an enormous terrorist destruction of, of capital or, or a wartime destruction of capital? No, not quite. Um, and so it does seem to me that we're not prepared in that sense. We don't have a clear narrative about what to do about this stuff. And I think that applies both for the right and for the left. Um, where, do you have any sense of where we should be looking to think about this stuff? Well, I, look, uh, the, 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 what I've my sort of attempt to kind of classify bits of, of 
what's taking place here is to say, you know, what are what are the fundamentals of how capitalism operates? What is the the fundamental relationship under capitalism? Fundamental relationship under capitalism remains the relationship between labour and capital. This is this is the the sort of be all and end all of how the thing how you can recognise capitalism is that relationship being established. That is the the one thing that marks out relative to other forms and ways of organising society. If you have something which fundamentally disrupts that relationship, in particular that you have large numbers of people who cannot perform their part of that relationship, which is to go out and labour and, and, and work and do so for money and do so under, under the direction of capital in particular, then you are in a very, very difficult situation as, as a functioning capitalist uh, economy. So things like the need to kind of halt that economy from working in a certain sense, or at least large parts of it from, you know, working if they involve socialising other people, that's what you need to stop. The need to do this uh, creates an enormous problem for capitalism, which it kind of, if you like, expresses as a recession. That's what you get. It's very, very hard to get this basically very dynamic system founded on the basis of squeezing out more and more work from people and piling it up in one form or another as capital. If you say we're going to break that process uh, and we're going to sort of intervene and say actually we're going to have a load of people who can't take part in that process anymore, it creates an enormous problem for capitalism. And either you have a state system and society really that, that can cope with that and manage that process effectively, which is to in this case, do the sort of self-isolation and social distancing and to apply those measures to apply them for a fairly significant period of time. Or you don't have a state in society can do that, in which case you, you flap around all over the place and the long-term costs are, as you say, somewhat higher. Now, the, the calculation that is entering into presumably the US administration and sort of the, the government here, although I think they've backed right off from, from the sort of herd immunity thing, is that there will be a point at which the costs of getting people back to work are reduced because there is a level of immunity that's built up. You have a sufficiently large number of people who have had uh, the virus, who've already been, you know, gone through the whole COVID-19 process, recovered from it or frankly just died but they're not going to be infectious anymore and they have a, a level of immunity if they go back out to work so once you get to that point that's when you might think oh well now we can start up again which is why there's a rush for instance to get uh, testing these home testing kits which will basically on my understanding tell you if you if you're immune to to the virus frankly because you've already had it in some form therefore you can go back out to work so so that's when you you that's when you start to try and manage the process of returning to normality and and if you can do this quickly i mean if the biggest intervention would be, can we, you know, if we somehow had an effective vaccine that arrived like next week, normality could then be re restored fairly rapidly um, because you just give everyone the vaccine, rely on herd immunity, that's it, everything's back to normal, we can dust ourselves off and carry on much as we were. Um, that's not going to happen for 18 months, is the reckoning, at least 18 months before we have a safe vaccine. Mm. So the biggest intervention you have to call a halt to this process isn't going to be there for a while. Therefore, the effects become long term. And therefore, you have to try and manage this sort of weird process of herd immunity and other second waves and the rest of it and try and manage the costs of initially failing to intervene and then having to run to catch up with countries that did intervene successfully, it seems. Right. I mean, I, I think probably it's also it's worth so. I don't listeners may not know or they may not have seen they may have chosen to switch off from uh the sort of occasional waves of apocalyptic uh predictions and forecasts um but you mentioned them just a little earlier that you know there there are predictions so sort of Morgan you know Morgan Stanley and Goldman they're predicting these kind of you know really huge contractions yeah. in 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 the US economy and in global gdp and they 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 are they are predicting them temporarily although i think uh 
you know <laughs> there, there's always that you know in in two quarters we'll be out of the the the, the danger zone and uh, i think if you go back and look at uh you know uh uh the obr's predictions for you know when uh, the British economy would recover after 2008. It was always, you know, two quarters away, we'll be back in growth. Never didn't quite work out like that. Um, but, you know, so so can, can you give just a sense for people? Because there, there are obviously these kind of, you know, the, these kind of terrifying looking numbers. But just, you know, what would the impact be in people's lives, the, the, the way they sort of, you know, the, the way that we live our lives? Because what I'm thinking of here is that you know, obviously, there was a period in the last financial crisis, right, as, which, as we said, is not like this one or, or the way that, that this one is progressing. It, you know, it, in which there were these terrible headlines and everything was, you know, worried and we were, you know, I can't remember, 24 hours away from cash failing to come out of cash points. Um, but actually, you know, unless, you know, in the aftermath, you were at the kind of very sharp end of austerity, um, the systemic effects of that crisis were not so bad. Things were a bit worse, right? But they, you know, for, for the majority of people, they were survivable, if not enjoyable or sure. really livable in some way. Um, so, so what would the impact of this one look like? Would it would it have sort of similarly sort of marginal effects, or would it be? you know, uh, an order of magnitude worse. It looks like an order of magnitude. I mean, it is already an order of magnitude worse in terms of its impact on people's lives. Uh, Three million extra people appearing on the US unemployment register in the space of a few days is is spectacularly bad by by anyone's uh, standards. I mean, remember with 2008 and 2009, because it was a financial crisis, ultimately that can be resolved by the state using its capacity to to issue money. I mean, that's, that's... partly what happens with QE and partly what happens with other uh, bailouts and, uh, and interventions, that the state is there and can guarantee the system. Now, if it gets really serious, then eventually the state's ability to guarantee the system starts to be called into question. Uh, and that is, a, that is a really sort of catastrophic uh, financial crisis. But we didn't get there. We, the state was able to intervene uh, in this country in particular to basically keep the show on the road uh, at vast expense and at the cost over the last 10 years, effectively, of austerity being applied uh, to the whole of society. But nonetheless, it kind of um, paid a large amount of money in effect to keep everything uh, more or less exactly as it was. I mean, there have been, I should be clear, there have been changes to how financial systems operate. And there have been lots of other changes in the global economy over that period of time. But the intervention was there to try and insulate everybody from the true impact, if you like, of of a financial crisis of that scale. The challenge this time round the, the primary one right now is that there is no amount of money that can be paid to resolve this crisis. That sum of money does not exist. The, the most you can do is find enough money to make it possible to implement these public health measures effectively, which means find enough money to pay people to stay at home and deal with their rent and mortgage and other outgoings. There is no sum of money that can be paid to sort of get rid of the virus. That can't happen. There, there is no vaccine that exists right now, regardless of how much money you put into it. You can accelerate the process of getting there, but it, it won't get you there. If your uh, logistics systems are basically come under so much pressure, they're, they're close to 
breaking down, which is the reason, and Craig Gent's article in Navarra, I thought this week was really, really good in this, that your very carefully engineered just-in-time uh, delivery systems, that mean your supermarkets run very, very low inventories and get precisely the right amount of food on the shelf all the time and under conditions of normal demand, if they break down, there is no amount of money that will suddenly patch that back up. Like you have to actually work out how to deliver food. It's these kind of very raw economic questions, material economic questions that are suddenly imposed by this crisis in a way that you didn't see in 2008 and 2009. If the cash points run out of money, this is a solvable problem. You issue more money. I mean, that might create other problems down the line, but that's what you can do. If people can't go out because they'll get an infectious disease and potentially kill someone else, that's not a money solve. There's no money you can pay to make that not happen. So it's really fundamental. Uh, and if you go through some what are likely to be some of the side effects of this and the way that you can already see, I think you, you can see the kind of, at the international level, this sort of jockeying for position around it. It's quite striking, for example, that China is sending aid to Italy. I mean, this, this is a transformation mm -hmm. in how we might think about how the world operates and who's on the top and who isn't. Um, if you look at that, you can see some of the longer term effects, I think, already playing out. And like I said, potentially one of the longer term effects is a shift in the balance of power in workplaces and throughout society back towards people who work and away from capital, which is which is a change over the last from the last 40 years or so when it's all gone the other direction. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that, that has struck me, it, it just sort of like obviously being <laughs> confined at the moment, like everyone else is, you know, scrolling through sort of social media and trying to get out of you know, the, 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 the bubble of the extremely actively politically engaged, right? So these people who pay attention to news all the time. And you have people, you know, also, you know, so it's not just on, on a sort of economic or, or, or kind of trade union level, and you're thinking about the sort of bargaining power of labor. Labor, You have, you know, the, these kind of people, you know, you know, and who knows how temporary it is, but, but really sort of talking about the people who really run society and things like that. So I think that, you know, you've yeah. got, even got Britney Spears, I think. Mm -hmm. um, there was something rather confusing about that that I didn't quite uh, follow. But, but, but yes, I, I believe she's calling for a general strike or something. So, so, <laughs> but, so you can see perhaps a kind of cultural shift here or sort of some kind of, you know, sort of cultural reevaluation. Um, but perhaps we should move then to talk about the sort of politics on this stuff. So the way that this stuff feeds through to politics, it doesn't seem to me, you know, other than in the most general sense that the, the kind of scale of this stuff has necessarily fed through into the way people are approaching the so politicians are approaching the crisis other than in, in the most sort of general terms. Um, because although you have sort of some skepticism about the way that things have been done, it does, you know, if you look at the polling, there's, still and increasing significant popular support for the way that the government is handling it. And it, I, I wonder, you know, why you think that is or how durable you think that is. There are a couple of things to that. I mean, the first one is that the, the, the kind of the scale of what we're going through isn't yet apparent. We're, we're, we're not yet at the peak. We're actually... I mean, we're only a few weeks away, but we're not yet at the peak of, of what is forecast to be the, the viral epidemic itself in this country. So we're not yet at the point where the NHS is at risk of being seriously overwhelmed in the way that we've seen in Italy with, with basically really quite seriously ill people uh, trying to get treatment and, and not being able to get it. So so we're not yet at that point in the, in the, the very raw pandemic part of the crisis. And we're some distance away from the potential sort of economic 
uh, and financial parts of the crisis, which is debt crises emerging in the rest of the world, potential debt crises mm-hmm. happening here because people haven't been given the support they need to you know, not have to pay the rent and this sort of thing. So so that kind of parts of it haven't quite happened. It's not phony war. I mean, people are already like, getting ill and people are already dying. This is serious and horrible uh, and tragic, but it's not at the point at which it's, it's the, the overwhelming part of the crisis, I'd say, in that, that first part. The second part is is that in terms of the, the government's response, partly related to that, it's not immediately clear that they have or have not got all of this wrong or whatever, or any of this wrong. Like, they, you won't, it's not something you know until you get to the mm-hmm. other side of the immediate kind of pandemic surge, if you like, which is you know, three months' time or two months' time, let's say, uh, that you can make an assessment over whether the government behaved did the right things or didn't do the right things. And there is an argument about that. There's a legitimate argument in, in epidemiology about, you know, what is the best way to approach crises like this? And there's a sort of political argument around it as well. There's a lot of, of different separate political, almost ideological arguments, uh, really, that, that are taking place around this. But an assessment of it isn't really going to be available until afterwards. Now, I think that the socially aware assessment of this, and probably the one that makes the most sense in the end economically, is that you need to intervene like rapidly on every possible bit that you can, which includes versions of lockdown, mass testing, the sort of stuff we've seen in, in South Korea, I think is probably the nearest applicable example. And you do that because the economic hit now is lower than the cost of having a sort of continual recurring crisis uh, all the way down the line, uh, stretching into the future, which is, is the risk of, of not sort of doing this. But that, again, isn't quite apparent yet. It's also, and the final point is this, it's also not clear quite where we end up on the other side of the immediate crisis period. It's not clear where the political arguments are going to land and who's going to be making them. The the Economist, like I said, has already lined up an argument saying, right, well, we'll get through this and then it's straight back onto austerity. Thank you very much. Other people will have different ideas about where that should go. And one of the things I think that's important, even in the midst of all this, or maybe particularly in the midst of all this, it is for those those of us on the left to think, actually, we need to construct a plausible argument about what a future world will look like after this crisis and how it could be different and better. Like, for instance, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? How do we make sure, it's a basic one, how do we make sure we don't have a health service that's completely overwhelmed if something like this turns up, as I, as I fear the NHS will be? Uh, so, so that's one of the arguments that we'd want to have and want to try and say this is what the terrain now is is like. And and I think when we get there, when we start to have those arguments to lay out what it is that we're trying to get to, potentially the space is quite open for a, a big political shift around those sorts of ideas. Right. I mean, I, I, I oh, sorry, I may have lost me slightly there, but uh, I think there is a question here about. Uh, so, so I mean, there are there are some things in the immediate political sense which are uh, obviously, I think, think difficult. And I, I mean, I agree with you as you say that it's going to be, you know, it's it's just hard to know what's going well and what's going badly, um, you know, until we're on the other side of it and can look back. It does seem to me that that you know there are the obvious sort of standard, uh, you know, questions going on about the, how the government is approaching this, you know, in the sense that it seems to me to be treating it like any other crisis, any other kind of political crisis in terms of its political management. Um, so, so you know, you've got the the sort of uh, the comm strategy, which seems a bit 
wonky and the the you know slow and that you know there's always these kind of sort of slightly shifting answers you know there was a really striking one uh earlier this week when they were talking about you know why hadn't the government moved earlier on ventilators and you got the standard sort of boris johnson shift into well we're going to do some ventilators soon stuff like that so so the the approaches here you know keep it very much still i think perhaps because uh, the, the the peak of the epidemic hasn't arrived yet. Keep it very kind of firmly in the standard uh, routines of of political emergency or political crisis. I, I do think that's going to probably shift a bit. Um, and the consequences, as you say, on the other side, I you know, I, the, sure, I agree that they're you know inevitably the way that we think about this at the moment is is sort of speculative. Mm-hmm. I think probably um, as you outlined earlier, there there is almost certainly going to be this sort of quite major shift in the way that people think about the state and what it does and so on and so on and so on. Uh, and, but it seems to me a shift that was already to a degree underway already. I guess my question then is how you think, uh, you know, these issues that, that, that you've raised, so one, the return of the state, two, the, uh, you know, that, that question of deglobalization, that question of, you know, effectively something like food security, which hasn't been on uh, the agenda for for a long time. The questions of agriculture, which you know rose up around Brexit, but were never really dealt with, sort of sort of slightly screwed over by the government. To be honest, um, you know these seem to me like questions that are now going to return. You know, is this going to you know is is the Tory program in two years' time going to be even remotely recognisable from what it was just a few weeks ago? I, I, I doubt it. I mean, there's uh, Robert Shrimsley in the Financial Times makes this point that basically there's, there's Boris Johnson's programme that he thought he would have in government. It would be defined by Brexit and a few other things. And now it's going to be defined by this uh, and the consequences of this, even if it's even if this is wrapped up fairly soon and, and it won't be, uh, will we'll kind of haunt politics and, and haunt how we do do any economic activity in this country for, for a long period of time after. So, so everything gets kind of shaped and bent around this crisis because it's a crisis of this very, very particular uh, magnitude and, an ex- and extent. But one factor in this, and, and you touched on this talking about deglobalization, um, one factor in this is that, is that a lot of the sort of things that we saw happening after 2008-9 are accelerating as a result of this crisis, things that have been in train for about 10 years. So the state everywhere has been becoming more economically interventionist. Britain is fairly unusual in that it is not more economically interventionist, but the state everywhere is becoming much more like this, certainly than it was in the high period of globalisation. There are state-owned companies all over the place. They're actually some of the biggest companies in the world. There are... um, there are, you know, there's industrial strategies that are being implemented. China's the most obvious example. America's trying to do the same thing. There's EU-wide versions of this sort of creeping through. That was already in train. Uh, world trade is a much smaller part of the economy than it used to be before 2008 and nine. Uh, global financial flows, incredibly, are down about 65% on the 2007 peak. Mm. So, so deglobalization in that sense was already happening. And this is likely to accelerate all of that because you have less trade, you have less international travel, you, you have shorter supply chains, you you do all of these things and you get more state intervention. So that was already there. The third one, I suppose, is is the uh, presence of big tech and big data uh, and its presence in these very, very large companies that appeared to domination mostly in the last sort of 10 years or so, really, if you think about the life 
Lifetime mm. of Facebook and, and a, a few of the others, that this is where they've really exploded. That th- This crisis is accelerating that. Like One of the ways you might want to deal with having to track and monitor people is that you need to look at their mobile phones and work out who they, where they've been near and who they've been talking to and that sort of thing. And that's a data question. That's a big data monitoring question. This is what's happening in China. This is what's being done in South Korea. There are efforts to try and bring that in over here. But that means institutionalizing further the presence of big data in our lives and therefore the presence mm. of the companies that manage and, and control and analyze this data. So so most of those things we saw from 2008 to nine look to me, the really big sort of trends here look like they're going to accelerate uh, as a result of this crisis rather than be wound back in. So you end up with a world out the other side, which is sort of less globalized in a sort of pre-2008 sense as the trade is less as important than it used to be. Financial flows cross-border are less important than they used to be. But data is a much more important part of it and the state is a much more important part of it right i mean the the just as you were saying there i was i was thinking obviously i don't know if you saw there was a rather silly piece from Giorgio Agamben very early on in in this this period where he's like oh you know the the state of exception you know this fake epidemic or whatever and he clarified and he doesn't mean that you know, it's a conspiracy or whatever um, the 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 germ of that, however, that I think is is worth considering if you sort of strip back all the sort of you know foolishness from on top of it, is is that what you're saying there is effectively um, a bio surveillance state, um, which you know I you know I I'm not particularly fond of as an idea, but it's very hard to imagine how there won't be moves to that sort of tracking, a recognition that if the state has this capacity to act, if there are these emergencies and these emergencies, pandemics like this are more likely to occur again. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that the countries that responded, uh, you know, quickest and apparently most effectively so far are countries which were exposed to SARS and which had kind of significant experience of dealing with this and had had sort of some background capacity in dealing with this so you know it, it does seem to me that, that there is going to be um, a, a move to this stuff which is obviously a little bit concerning um I, and therefore leads me on i guess really into thinking about because it's, it's difficult to respond to right because it's difficult to say oh the pandemic is bad it's bad that lots of people are dying but also at the same time this thing that appears an effective way to deal with it we can't have because it's uh, an infringement of civil liberties and human rights. Yes. And, and also I just don't want the state to, you know, I, I don't want, uh, you know, my ability to get a mortgage to depend on whether the state knows that I smoke or something, yeah. you know, um, you know, if, if I die before I repay the debt or something like that. Um, but, but do you see what I'm driving yes. at here? Because it, it moves to the question of, you know, how the left, can think about how to respond to the changed circumstances that are arising as a consequence of this. Well, that, that, I mean, this, this is a very specific challenge for the left and, and not one we've necessarily got a, a particularly good uh, answers to, which is, look, there's a fundamental issue here, which is like making the state really big is not the same as making socialism happen. Uh, and it's quite important that people get this in their heads. A big state does not mean a socialist state. Right? You, you can have all sorts of things nationalised and basically everything carries on much the same as it used to. We've actually had an example of that in this country. We had great chunks of the financial system. Banks nationalised and they carried on exactly the same. In fact, they were probably worse uh, in the case of RBS um, under st- mostly state ownership uh, than they were before. So it's not, it's not the same thing, starting point. The second bit is... 
is that I think you're right, actually, the way that data is going to sort of creep into all of this. I mean, there's an interesting report on Politico today about how moves in Europe to restrain the data giants are being wound back again and suddenly big tech is back in favour. Early reports of a meeting at Downing Street that Dominic Cummings, of course, uh, was chairing with some of the sort of British tech representatives, including all sorts of people, Deliveroo, Facebook, um, Deliveroo, you know, sort of makes sense, Uh, Palantir, which is Peter Thiel's... um, Hmm. Uh, well, it's a security company specialising in data techniques. So make of that what you will, I suppose. Um, so, so that was already part of like the programme of measures that were likely to come out of this. The, the question for the left is, is there some in-between form of ownership, for example, or something that you can apply to how data is held and managed uh, that we can use that would act as a barrier between yourself and this sort of state big data combination that's going to be trying to monitor you to work out whether you've got where you're you know you're you're infected with some pandemic virus right so is there something we can put in place there is there a form that we can manage and handle that data that allows us some control over its use and there are there are versions of what this might look like a lot of the work around things like data trusts the idea that you can have a sort of a special purpose vehicle to use a rather unfortunate term but a sort of legal entity which will take a group of people's data and, and allow them to have some sort of legal controls over its use and its management and that gives you some handle on what is then being used with your data at an aggregate level because the, the secret to data mm-hmm. is is its aggregation the more data you get the more powerful the more value you can get out of that data the more analysis you can do do from it and therefore the more control you can exert and the more money you can make um but if you have some legal form of control over that data potentially you can start to claw some of that back again and, and i think I hope, actually, that that at least some of this sort of post-COVID period is going to involve the left thinking more seriously about those questions and slightly flippant flippant versions of it that we've seen in the past, like, you know, let's nationalise Facebook and and make everything okay like this. It it involves doing something that the left has not been that good at for a long period of time because basically we've been trapped with this sort of state market duality, right? You either say, oh, it's either private ownership or it's public ownership. And that's it. And really, we need to find some points in the middle somewhere. I, I hesitate to assign to you a third way of thinking, <laughs> which I think would be rather rude. But no, I understand exactly what you mean. Um, I, I, I think, you know, and as you say, this question of, you know, because it's a very easy intellectual fallback to say, well, um, you know, what the state does, it's socialism, right? And if it's something other than the state, it's not socialism. It doesn't seem to me to... It's never seemed to me adequate, but it seems particularly inadequate to a moment in which you have, you know, you know, large corporations which are effectively as powerful as many nation states. It's not. It doesn't really respond to the kind of, uh, you know, economic geography that we have these days. I guess my question then, you know, in terms of so that's that's a, a sort of question that that should preoccupy really the left globally. Obviously, domestically. The left is in a bit of a strange position, having sort of endured um, a period of, of, I think, you know, wound licking and you know, in some cases despair after, you know, the defeat of December. And now, you know, just as uh, there is the uh, Labour Party leadership election still ongoing, there is uh, a new leader who is almost certainly going to be Keir Starmer coming in. So there are, I guess, serious questions about how you know the the Labour Party, I guess, in particular, but but also how the left, you know, ha, you know, is even able to respond um, to the way in which uh, the, 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 this is 
you know, the, you know, this crisis being managed by the government. Uh, do you have any sense of of the direction that the Labour Party will take? Because I have to, I, I have to confess, you know, I I really have been reminded over the course of the past couple of weeks, you know, uh, you know how much I I you know I I value there being uh, a left wing leadership of the Labour Party uh, in a crisis like this. Do you have any sense of which direction it's going to go? Um, when those ballots come God, in. It feels like one of those, I mean, you had to remind us all the Labour leadership election is still is still ongoing in the middle of all this. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it is. Uh, look, the, uh, let's, I mean, let's be honest about this. The, if the government responded slowly to this, I think the, the left in general, including uh, the Labour Party, responded slowly to this. And it's been very good to see mm. uh, John and Jeremy um, getting out and, and starting to make some of the essential points here. And I do think, by the way, that the, that's the sort of the online fuss, because we can't all, you know, can't all go in a demonstration at this point in time. We, we're going to have to think of new ways of organising stuff. I do, I do think some of the sort of online shouting that was in place, particularly backed up by kind of expert evidence, did help knock the government uh, off its, its, its sort of fairly lunatic herd immunity course uh, now approaching two weeks ago. So it does make a difference. It has shaped some of the outcomes. And if you look at the effective lobbying by the TUC, I think, of, of the Chancellor last week, delivered this sort of 80% protection for employee work. It's continual pressure this week, not just from the left, but obviously from Tory backbenchers from all sorts of places, has delivered further shifts this week. So, so the political pressure is there. It's just not necessarily arriving through the formal opposition. Uh, and with Parliament now suspended until April, and frankly, quite possibly it's going to be a bit longer than that, um, the opposition is going, to, is going to come from elsewhere. So, so that, that, I think, is an important thing to hold on to. I mean, what's been inspiring in some ways in this has been the appearance of these sort of mutual aid groups and, and the immediate switch that a lot of people had into thinking this was a good thing to try and set up and finding ways to make that work in you know, the way they can actually do useful things safely and securely. You can now see the government has adopted the, the model with this sort of NHS volunteers thing, which is, well, we'll see where that gets to. I mean, it's slightly, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to use some of these wartime analogies for, for reasons I've written about. I mean, in many ways, we're, we're dealing with not a, not a wartime economy, but a sort of anti-wartime economy, an economy where you want to do as little as possible apart from the essentials, right? That, that's what it means to get everybody in their homes just churning out podcasts or whatever it is you're going to have to do instead of, you know, your normal work. Um, so it, it well, is Well, listen, let me tell you, it's, it's a free nationalised... <laughs> Uh, fiber broadband yeah. right now would be a real relief. The, 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 the great gone, podcasting gone. boom of 2020 is like everybody with a, with a basement with a microphone and a computer is suddenly like giving their thoughts to the world, uh, whether the world cares or not. So that's um, no, no, it's it, you know, all sorts of cultural things will happen. I don't doubt as a, as a result of this period, in addition to everything else going on. Um, the the issue there, I think, is is that this, these are new ways of organising and new ways of, of working together that are being created, right? You, to set up a mutual aid group when you can't really meet people is quite a hard thing, but people are solving that. And, and I think that it creates a kind of implied politics. That, and, and a version of that is the way the government has sort of run to catch up with this thing. I mean, it does... It's where I came in at this thing before getting distracted by podcasts. It does remind me of, of how Dad's Army was set up. Dad's Army was set up in response to volunteers coming back from the, the Spanish Civil War, Tom Wintringham being the 
the primary example of this and the person who argued, he was a Communist Party member until they threw him out, uh, who argued for setting up volunteers, civil defence volunteers in case Nazi Germany invaded and they would go off and do weapons training. This panicked the government somewhat, so they set up the Home Guard as a kind of response to it. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a degree to which there's some of that mechanism taking place now that on the ground people have already set up mutual aid groups of various sorts and then the state turns up and sets up uh, something similar. So, so there's lots of sort of strange new political dynamics taking place, I think, and we should be alert to how those might work in a progressive di- direction over the next period. Right. I mean, I, I guess you, you sort of touched on it there, but um, my last question, I suppose, is that, you, you know, there is this constrained space for political action, right? So, you know, as you're saying, in a lockdown, how do you act politically? Um, obviously, you know, you've mentioned the, the mutual aid groups and the, the question of how those w- w- will work from now on. I don't, I don't know. Um, do, just do you have a sense of that? You know, are there other things that people can be doing? Because I know I, I can see, I can just see online people becoming frustrated mm-hmm. at the inability to kind of do anything here. Well, some of it is some of it is happening already in, in two spaces. One, one is that the. What is that? Actually, you can do a lot online. And I think people are discovering this. It is possible to create forms of political pressure as a result of online activity. Uh, And they may be sort of weak and slightly distorted and not what we're used to, but they are there. And and I think they're particularly going to be there in a period where most of conventional politics isn't functioning, that suddenly these things look more important. So there's all sorts of things you can do there. There's almost certainly a process of, at least for the sort of activist end of of society, a a process of political education. I think there's a lot more discussions taking place because here we all are having to try and try and relate to this enormous crisis and do some reading and all this sort of thing. So that's a, a sort of minor part of this, but I think it will, it will start to have impacts. But the other bit is actually it's, it's, it is some people are able to go and socially distance themselves by working from home. And there they are. A lot of people can't do that. And what's been interesting, and I just mentioned this, but what's been interesting is to see a reappearance of some forms of fairly obvious labor action, labor activity, in the sense of people getting organized and striking and protesting. This is starting to happen in some mm. workplaces where work is still taking place, uh, often for things like provision of basic safety implements. I mean, this is certainly what's what's occurring at Amazon warehouses uh, in Europe. And you, you see some of the, the other sort of protests that are taking place, uh, for example, about Weatherspoons not, not paying its staff uh, and that kind of thing. Mm. So, so there are some more sort of traditional versions of... Um, organization and protests that, that, that can take place even even in the midst of all this uh, and I think we should be alert to that occurring as well because like I said it potentially points to a world in which this 40-year process of labor being continually pushed back in terms of its bargaining power is suddenly starting to move in the other direction. That's it for this week my thanks to James Meadway for joining me do hit us up over on Navarra Media for everything you need to get you through this crisis. This has been Novaya FM and I have been, and of course will continue to be, James Butler here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com support.